Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Elizabeth Barraza, who went by Liz, grew up loving comic books and anything Star Wars and was said to have a big heart who was respectful to everyone. She grew up in Spring, Texas and went to Klein Collins High School. She married Sergio Barraza in 2014 and he was described as kind, generous, and an all-around amazing man. In 2016, the couple bought a home along the 8600 block of Cedar Walk Drive in the Princeton Place neighborhood in Tomball, Texas, which is a suburb of the Houston area. People describe their marriage as a seemingly normal and happy one, and both their co-workers stated that they spoke highly of each other, rarely ever bringing up any issues that the couple might have been facing. They were huge fans of the Star Wars and Harry Potter franchises and often attended events like Comic-Con, which is where the couple met. Liz often made elaborate costumes for her and her husband, and they both loved cosplaying at theme parks as well as conventions. She also used these same costumes in her role as a volunteer with the 501st Legion, a group of volunteers who dress up in stormtrooper costumes from Star Wars and visit children in hospitals in the Houston area. Through this, Liz had become acquainted with the Make-A-Wish Foundation and loved helping sick children feel better. In early 2019, the couple was planning a trip to Florida to visit the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Orlando's Universal Studios to celebrate their fifth anniversary. Just days before the trip, with bags already packed, 29-year-old Liz decided to have a last-minute garage sale to make a little more money for their trip. On the morning of January 25, 2019, Liz spent the morning setting up the garage sale in her front yard. She had not posted anything about the garage sale online because she had just decided the night prior to have it. But she did get up early the next morning and put up some signs about the garage sale throughout the neighborhood. She took the day off from her job at Rosin Group, a pipeline inspection company where she worked as a data reporter. Only a few co-workers, family members, and friends knew about her plans that day. Sergio left their home at around 6.48 a.m. to go to his job, which included flooring and carpet installation. At 6.53 a.m., with the sun still rising, someone drove up and parked across the street. That same vehicle would be seen on several doorbell cameras driving through the neighborhood beforehand. Liz, who had been preparing things for the garage sale, seemed to pause at around the same time that the truck stopped across the street. It's unknown if she might have recognized the vehicle or if she might have paused for another reason entirely. 
The individual left the engine running and exited the truck with long hair, which could have been a wig and was possibly wearing a costume robe. The person made a beeline to Liz, standing at the top of the driveway. A video shows Liz appearing to freeze at the sight of the person. For about eight seconds, the two exchanged some words, then the person pulled out a handgun from inside of their jacket or robe that they were wearing and shot Liz three times at point-blank range. After she fell on the ground, the person stepped over her body and fired one more shot. The person then ran back to their truck and sped away. The shooter actually circled back around to either make sure that she was actually dead or some have theorized that maybe they needed to take a picture of her body lying in the driveway. One of her neighbors called 911 immediately and reported hearing several gunshots. Authorities would arrive at the scene quickly to find Liz lying in the driveway of her home with multiple gunshot wounds. She would later die in the hospital not long afterwards. Sergio would be questioned that day for a period of time inside their home. Meanwhile, everyone who knew her were left shocked at what just happened. Days later, her loved ones gathered with toy wands and lightsabers and held a vigil in her honor. Both her husband and father would later speak at the same press conference. Houston Crime Stoppers would announce a $20,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of Liz's killer. That amount has since increased to $50,000 thanks to her friends and fellow Star Wars cosplayers from the 501st Legion. Investigators would also begin to question those close to the couple, theorizing that the killer might have been someone that either Liz or her husband knew. Investigators described the attack as cold-blooded, calculated, and deliberate and had a hard time determining any type of motive or identifying any potential motive related to either Liz or Sergio. No shell casings were found at the crime scene, which led investigators to believe that the weapon used had been a revolver. It has been reported over the past two years that the shooter handed Liz an item before shooting her, an item that was supposedly found at the crime scene, which may or may not have been a note. However, investigators have not spoken publicly about this rumor, so this may or may not be true. Police would quickly learn that there were several surveillance cameras in the neighborhood, and the shooter had been driving throughout the neighborhood both before and after the crime took place. The vehicle appeared to be a four-door, dark-colored 2013 or newer model Nissan Frontier with a Pro 4X decal attached. It was reported early on that this truck had been seen in camera footage the night prior, canvassing the area ahead of the shooting, waiting for her husband to leave. Some believe that the shooter is female by the gait of the individual. Within hours of the shooting, investigators would begin releasing footage of it to the public, hoping that someone would recognize either the truck or the shooter. The shooter was likely very experienced with a gun, since they seemed to shoot Liz quite casually with one hand. Also, the shooter appeared to be raising a hand to their head as they ran back to their vehicle, which leads some to believe that they might have been wearing a wig. It's also believed that they were wearing some type of costume during the murder, and several people in the cosplay scene have been known to have stalkers. Strangely, Liz would have normally already left for work at this time, so this means the killer was either one of the few people that was aware she called out from work that morning, or it was just a random murder. 
This individual also parked in the ultimate blind spot for cameras throughout the neighborhood, far enough from the security cameras to avoid being identified and not close enough to be picked up on the Barraza's doorbell camera. They seem to park in the perfect position to avoid being seen and then take the quickest route to reach Liz, all the while remaining out of the sight of the doorbell camera just feet away from the crime scene itself. In the months after this bizarre and tragic shooting, authorities would attempt to pull footage from every camera in a radius around the crime scene, hoping to track where the vehicle had gone after the shooting. Some web sleuths have theorized that the shooter might have been someone that either Liz or Sergio was having an affair with, but so far there has been no evidence of this. Investigators have stated that they've thoroughly investigated the digital lives of both Liz and Sergio in the hopes of finding a potential motive, but have not been able to find anything incriminating. No emails, no messages through social media, no phone records, etc. Nothing indicates that either person was having an affair or being threatened before or after the shooting, so there seems to be no apparent reason for this crime tied into their relationship. Much of the discussion online seems to be centered around Liz and Sergio's work with the Make-A-Wish Foundation and the 501st Legion, the group of Star Wars fanatics that cosplay and volunteer at hospitals and events. While it's possible that someone in this group carried out the crime, perhaps someone infatuated with either Liz or Sergio, it's just as likely that the killer was someone else from their social group. In January of 2021, police released the footage from the doorbell camera of Liz and Sergio's home. Unfortunately, the angle of the home obscures the driveway, so not much of Liz or the shooter can be seen. But it provides some audio of the shooting after Liz greeted the shooter by telling them good morning before getting shot. The audio is difficult to hear, and I won't play it due to the gunshots heard, but you can easily find it on YouTube. Also, robbery was not a motive, as nothing in the Barraza's driveway was touched by the killer, including the valuable possessions for sale and approximately $100 withdrawn for the garage sale. It's theorized that the killer might have known about this camera and parked where they did to avoid being seen by it. In the years since Liz's death, Sergio has attempted to move on with his life and got remarried to Amber Cheatham on November 30th, 2021. He remains in close contact with Liz's family, and as of May 2022, this case remains unsolved. Tavetta Michelle Hobbs was born in 1965. After high school, she joined the U.S. Navy and began moving around a lot. In 1992, she married Phil Hobbs, and the couple lived in Virginia before moving to California and then moved back east in 2004 to 5809 Edgeberry Road in Raleigh, North Carolina. With Tavetta no longer in the Navy, she began working with Salesforce in Cary, North Carolina while training to be a certified stenographer. She had a brother named Clinton who she had been very close with, but the two would have a fallen out leading to longer periods between their communication with each other. In the winter of 2008, Clinton and his mother reached out to Tavetta's husband to check on her because they hadn't heard from her in a couple months. That's when her husband, Phil, said that Tavetta had left during Thanksgiving week the month earlier. He said he came home from work and she was gone to Burbank, California and didn't tell him why. 
Strangely though, she never picked up her last paycheck, she never took her belongings, and had left her car behind. There is also no signs that she took public transportation when she supposedly left, and there are still no signs she ever spent any money. She also didn't take her much-needed eyeglasses, and they were left behind at the house. She also hadn't told her brother or anyone else that she had any thoughts of moving back to California where her brother lives. Clinton decided to report his sister missing in October 2009, nearly a year since she was last seen. During the investigation, it was discovered that three days before Thanksgiving 2008, a text message was sent from her cell phone to her boss stating that she was quitting her job. Some speculate that she may not have been the person to send the text message, and it was quite possible her husband was using her phone following foul play. Her boss said that it was definitely suspicious for her to quit so suddenly because she had seemed very happy with her employment. Her brother quickly regretted the falling out the two had at a family reunion. If they had continued to speak frequently, he might have known something was wrong sooner. Police have said they have reason to believe that Tavetta Hobbs is dead, but as of May 2022, this case remains unsolved. Sherry Hare was born in 1971 to Richard and Connie Hare and lived in a rural area of small town Warren, Indiana. At the age of 18, Sherry was a student at Indiana Vocational Technical School studying to become a medical assistant and was living with her parents. On the morning of October 13, 1989, her parents left for work and Sherry had a class scheduled that morning, but she would tragically never make it. When her father returned home from work, he found Sherry on her bedroom floor murdered. She had been stabbed with a pair of scissors and died from blunt force trauma. But the coroner did not believe that she had been sexually assaulted. With no signs of a sexual assault and nothing missing from the home, a motive could not be determined. Detectives believe that she was killed sometime between 8.30 a.m. and noon. Police received a tip from a passerby that they had seen a suspicious man parked near the Hare house on the morning of Sherry's death. They described the man as a white male in his early 20s, driving a mid to late 1970s dark red or maroon Camaro with stock sport wheels, a raised rear end, spoiler, and double stripes from front to rear. But the man or car was never identified and the case would go cold. Her father passed away in 1998, leaving her mother and other loved ones to continue to seek justice for Sherry, and as of today, this case remains unsolved. Trevor Daly was born in 1978 and was the youngest of four siblings to parents Michael and Anne Daly in Noss County, Kildare, Ireland. After school, he tried studying business at Waterford Institute of Technology, working part-time in a supermarket, but dropped out in his second year. He then moved to Dublin and began taking computer courses, and his loved ones say that he had finally found what he really enjoyed and was really good at it. In 1999, he started work in the IT department of the Bank of Ireland. He was described as positive and fun, very easygoing and good-natured all the time, and a very reliable and ambitious employee. 
On the night of December 7, 2000, 22-year-old Trevor attended his work Christmas party in Dublin. He and his colleagues went to the Hilton Hotel at Charlemont Place for the celebration. Afterwards, he and others went to have more drinks at Buck Welly's nightclub on Lower Leeson Street. There was a heavy storm that night with wind gusts reaching speeds of 60 to 70 miles per hour, resulting in a taxi strike. So during the early morning hours of December 8, 2000, about 3.30 a.m., he left the bar and began walking. About 10 minutes after he left Buck Whaley's, Trevor arrived at his office on Wilton Terrace, and he was let in by security. CCTV footage showed a still unidentified man dressed in black waiting outside the office for over 30 minutes in the rain prior to Trevor's arrival. Trevor and the man spoke briefly before Trevor went inside and fetched an umbrella and made himself a cup of tea, spoke to a colleague by the name of Carl Pender, checked his email, and made a note of things to do for his shift the following morning. At 4.03 a.m., Trevor left his office and started walking towards his flat on Serpentine Avenue in Ballsbridge, a suburb of Dublin. He left a voicemail for his friend Glenn back home in Noss. Unfortunately, Glenn didn't save the voicemail, not thinking much of it, but this is what he claimed it to say. Hi Glenn, I've missed you there. Just on my way home, all going good, I'll talk to you tomorrow. At 4.14 a.m., CCTV footage shows Trevor carrying an umbrella walking past the then AIB bank on the corner of Bagot Street Bridge. This remains the last confirmed sighting of him. 34 seconds after he was last seen, a man in black is seen walking down the same street on CCTV and appears to be following Trevor. Authorities believe this is likely the same man in black who talked to him earlier. Some people believe he was just a victim of being at the wrong place at the wrong time because the street he was on was known for gang activity and prostitution. But others believe Trevor was being stalked by the man in black, but if so, the reasons are unknown. An even smaller number of people believe Trevor's disappearance is linked to the girlfriend he visited in Alaska a few weeks prior. When Trevor failed to show at work the next day, no one thought anything of it as it had been a very late night. His flatmates were away for the weekend, and they had no idea that he had not arrived home after his Christmas night out. It was only when he didn't appear at work on the Monday morning that it was established that no one had seen or spoken to him since Thursday night. The alarm was then raised, but valuable time and possible information and clues were lost. At the time of his disappearance, an extensive search of the area was made, and the River Daughter and Grand Canal were thoroughly examined. Potential witnesses were hard to track down, but dozens of night workers and partygoers were interviewed. Not a single piece of information was worth pursuing. Finally, in 2017, police thought they might have a breakthrough in the case when an informant came forward. The informant told of how Trevor had become involved in an argument with a notorious drug-dealing gang and had been murdered on the night he disappeared. The informant advised a search of a wooded area in Shapelizod, approximately five miles away from where Trevor was last seen. Despite the discovery of a gun and a significant number of drugs, no connection could be made, and the search was called off in September of 2017. 
Once again, Trevor's family were left with no closure on how he simply vanished. In the fall of 2019, 19 years after his disappearance, a potential witness came forward. This witness has not been identified by the police, but it has been disclosed that their information supports the theory that Trevor was murdered after an argument with a criminal gang. A senior source describes this witness as highly significant, giving them hope in the case. They are desperate to give his family answers, but as of May 2022, this case remains unsolved. Seven-year-old Alexis Patterson, who went by Lexi, was born 1995 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and was living with her mother, Ayana Patterson, and stepfather, Laron Bourgeois. She was described as very bubbly, happy, and liked to have fun. On the morning of May 3, 2002, Lexi was upset that her parents wouldn't let her take cupcakes to school as a class treat because her homework wasn't done correctly the evening before. Her stepfather, Laron, was walking her to school that morning and said that he and Lexi walked half a block from their home to High Mount Community School. After that, he said that Lexi crossed the road towards the school with the help of a crossing guard and then he turned around and walked back home. However, Lexi would never arrive home from school that day, prompting her mother to call the police. It was discovered that some children at the school had told administrators and investigators that they saw Lexi on or near the school playground before and after school Friday, but never in the building that day. A large search ensued through the area woods, abandoned houses, and the nearby waters, but she could not be located. The Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department helicopter was also deployed to assist in the search. Nearly 100 volunteers organized a bicycle and foot search in the neighborhood where she disappeared. Police Chief Arthur Jones speculated early on in the investigation that Lexi had run away after the argument over the cupcakes. Ayana and Laron were desperate for their daughter's safe return and pleaded in the media for help. They made tearful pleas for her return and held on to the hope that she was only missing. Milwaukee public school officials came under criticism for not contacting Lexi's family as soon as it was discovered that she was not in class. According to the school, they followed correct protocol, which was to notify a parent or guardian by the end of a second day if a child is missing from school. Both Ayana and Laron were brought in for questioning, and Laron was extensively questioned in regards to the disappearance, and when given a polygraph exam, he allegedly failed. Reports revealed that Laron had a criminal record, once serving a two-year prison term for selling drugs and being a getaway driver in a 1994 bank robbery that left Officer Ronald Headbanny dead. Laron, who is the getaway driver, was granted immunity from prosecution in exchange for his testimony against the shooter, who was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Despite this, Milwaukee police say they have found no connection between the stepfather's criminal past and Lexi's disappearance. Meanwhile, police announced that Lexi's disappearance had entered a criminal investigation phase, indicating that it was now believed that Lexi had met with foul play as opposed to running away. Soon after her disappearance, a 22-year-old racist, Brian Werner, was arrested after posting explicit hate flyers regarding her disappearance. 
he posted the flyers outside America's Black Holocaust Museum and on cars and shop doors on the east side of the city. Citizen tips regarding his racist tattoos is what ultimately led to his identification and he was basically forced to turn himself in. More hate flyers were discovered in his vehicle along with a Nazi flag and he was questioned about Lexi's whereabouts in which he asked why anyone would care. As the weeks turned to months, the tips and leads dried up. Then in late August, there was an anonymous tip to a television station from somebody who said that Lexi was in the Milwaukee River. However, despite an extensive and exhaustive search, no sign of her was found. In April of 2003, LaRon was arrested and charged with beating Ayana and threatening to kill her. According to Ayana, LaRon had not been supportive since her daughter's disappearance and became controlling, abusive, along with selling drugs and pimping out women. In 2016, police thought they cracked the case when a man came forward to say the age progression images looked like his ex-wife, who he said had a very murky past. However, DNA testing ruled her out, but that didn't stop Ayana from believing that the woman was indeed her daughter. She's demanded more DNA tests, but those have not been granted. LaRon died in 2021 of a suspected drug overdose. Each year, Ayana holds a birthday party for her missing daughter. She is convinced Lexi is still alive and well and says that until there is evidence to prove otherwise, that she will live under that assumption. But as of May 2022, Lexi has never been found and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.